0: I could definitely see like Verizon AT&T potentially using Starlink's uh, system to backhaul that capacity from a localized area down on the ground in a remote area, bring it up into space and back down to another data center somewhere else.
1: The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello, and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello and our special guest, Shrihari Pandit. Hi. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out our space news commentary and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also tweet us at SpexCast or send an email to spexcast at gmail.com. Shrihari Pandit is the CEO of Stealth Communications. His company serves gigabit internet to New York City over their own fiber optic network. On this episode, Srihari will take us through the ins and outs of how Leo constellations like Starlink and Project Kuiper will play a role in delivering high-speed internet to people across the globe. He joins us remotely via Zoom. It's a pleasure to speak with you today, Srihari.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Can you introduce yourself for our listeners?
0: Sure. So Again, my name is Srihari Pandit, CEO of Stealth Communications. Uh, Stealth is an internet service provider based in New York City. We provide uh, gigabit internet access to businesses. It's a company that my wife and I started back in 1995. And uh, our, our mission has been to be able to better connect organizations to the internet um, You know, using fiber optic um, technologies and lines. So uh, we're quite excited in terms of what we do in New York City. We actually have a franchise um, that allows us to lay our own fiber cables in the city's roadways. And we have employees that basically uh, trench the roadways, put conduits, manholes in, they pull fiber through conduits, bring them into commercial buildings and up into tenants' offices.
1: Great, and uh, you said it was founded in 1995. Has your mission changed a whole lot since then?
0: Oh, we started back in the days of dial-up. So when the company was first started, you know, I believe, if I remember, if my memory serves correct, it was a 28.8 and 56k modems, and then we ultimately got ISDN, and then T1s, fractional T1s, and T3s, were the thing. So we've seen uh, the shift in the different speeds, but fundamentally, it's been the same in terms of connecting organizations to the internet. Um, and so, uh, fast forwarding. 25 years later internet is now a key part of everyone's business without it your business is just unable to function
1: so starlink promises low latency and high bandwidth internet access which is something that fiber internet has been providing for decades now Um, in your experience where does internet latency come from
0: Sure. So latency, um, in essence, is the cumulative delay of sending data from your computer um, to the website and coming back. And you know, that's uh, like the round-chip delay or round-chip latency. So um, every time your data has to go from um, router to router, that adds delay. But another thing that can add delay is the length of uh, um, of the transmission from one router to another router. So, for example, it could be a fiber optic link typically. Um, you know, um, there's a certain amount of latency, even in fiber, um, a, fr- a fraction of the speed of light that runs through fiber, and um, and if you're running through copper or cable modem, you know the speeds can the latency could even be higher, um, the delay, and so with Starlink, you know what's fascinating is um, they're running it through air, you know these millimeter um, frequency bands, and so they can actually run technically a little faster than fiber, um, and that's how they can achieve this low latency. So. Um, so for businesses, latency is really important. It's not people, the first thing when people think about low latency is they think about high frequency um, traders, you know, who want to arbitrage financial markets. And there's been films and books written about that, you know, where these automated systems um, trade and arbitrage. And actually, we used to service that market quite a bit back in the 2000 area. So um it's quite familiar with that, but low latency is also very important for day-to-day activity. For example, a lot of businesses no longer have their traditional telephone pots lines, um, you know, which is copper-based. They all are typically using voice or IP. Or today we're having this Zoom call, and so low latency allows us to have this near-time, um, real-time communications. And so again, if there was a half a second or or a second delay, it would make it very uncomfortable to be able to have that real-time communications. And obviously, um, other sectors, gaming, you know, that's fundamentally requires a low latency because otherwise that lag will put that player at a disadvantage. And so those are just some some examples of um, latency um, in terms of its importance and why it needs to be that low.
1: Yeah. And, and with so many services moving to the cloud, you mentioned gaming. Uh, Google came out with Stadia, which is like, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
2: SpaceX is a newcomer to the broadband internet se- sector, and it's lately been hard to miss all the launches of more Starlink satellites every few weeks. But Stealth is a terrestrial internet service provider that uses fiber optic cables. Um, mega const- constellations and laying underground fiber are very, very different feats of engineering. What are the biggest challenges that Cell faces when it comes to providing that high-speed internet access?
0: Sure. So um, in New York City, this is interesting. Um, So New York City, um, even though it's five boroughs uh, that make up the city, um, Manhattan and a portion of the Bronx is actually treated a little bit differently in the other boroughs, and I'll explain. So the biggest challenge is, um, in order to run fiber cost effectively, we need to be able to run it in existing conduits, if they exist. And that can bring down the cost of installation on a per-foot basis, let's say, hypothetically, $20 to $50 per foot. But if we have to trench the roadway, meaning put these conduits in the ground um, in order to create a pathway to bring the fiber to a building, that can cost hundreds of dollars um, per foot. Um, so it's very expensive building out this infrastructure. And that's probably the biggest hurdle. So we have customers, for example, we're building a whole new underground system in Brooklyn. And uh, there is isn't uh, an open neutral conduit system there. So we have to trench every single block. And so not only is the cost high, like two to $400 per foot, but it can take weeks or months, you know, to get blocks done. And that, and imagine a city that large, you know, it could take years, decades even, to get this uh, fully built out. And I think this is the biggest challenge in our industry. Um, This is the reason why we don't really have fiber readily accessible um, throughout the United States. And that's why you see fiber highly concentrated in cities because again, that high density allows providers to make that capital investment to build these conduits and that fiber system out to be able to reach um, folks.
2: So with that build out, um, you're building fiber to businesses. What's the difference between providing that last mile service and providing Mm -hmm. something like internet backhaul?
0: Um, Internet backhaul. So I presume when you say internet backhaul, probably like point-to-point transmission services to go from one location to another,
2: right? Point-to-point or between data centers, internet links, things like that.
0: Ah, so um, so yeah. So we primarily build from a data center, like in New York City, and we build out that last mile to go into a uh, particular building. Um, and so, in order to do that last mile build out, so um, we have a this fiber backbone that's already pre-built, and then we have a splice points underground where we can build off that splice point and bring that last piece, you know, into the building. And so that might require trenching. But once that, that conduit's built from the spice enclosure um, nearest to our node to the building, um, then we can backhaul it to the data center. Once it gets to the data center, um, if the if the customer picked internet service, we can route it to the internet from the data center because we're peered with everyone there. Or if they need to connect from the data center to, let's say, a location in Los Angeles, you know, um, out of our New York City site, we can hand that circuit off to a long haul carrier, let's say AT&T or Verizon or whoever it might be, and they can complete that long haul circuit, you know, going to the other city. But um, but yeah, once we run the fiber, it's in essence just a piece of dark fiber. Um, and it could be used for any application.
2: Now, uh, with those dark fibers, is that is that something that's a, a popular product? Is that something that's more useful now in the, the 2020s than it was 10, 15 years ago?
0: Um, so dark fiber, um, by definition, I guess, is unused fiber, unlit fiber. And so typically people buy dark fiber from us, you know, within the city. But typically those would be, could be, again, wholesale carriers that may need fiber to connect, you know, um, a building or the data centers together, or it could be very large enterprises um, that have huge amounts of capacities, could be hospitals. So yeah, there's been a small uptick, you know, in dark fiber, but predominantly the demand that we've seen, especially this year um, is like from educational and from the healthcare sector is they just need large bulk internet connectivity. And so what they're asking us is to build fiber um, into their locations um, so they can get, let's say multiple gigabit or 10 gigabit or higher connectivity. And um, so this is where fiber is crucial. You got to have fiber to be able to reach those high data rates.
1: Is that for, um, for COVID and, and um, remote distance learning? learning yes, reasons?
0: exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, there's always been large uh, bandwidth needs uh, from these particular sectors, but it's just gone off the scale now because of COVID. And so it's naturally understandable that everything's moving more remote now, and especially schools. And um, if you look at healthcare, you see a lot of uh, doctors doing in a telemedicine, and so that's likely driving up the needs and
1: then once that fiber is laid and those connections are made that's a a long-standing investment so even after um the pandemic these schools and, and hospitals will
0: have gigabit internet and huge internet capacity right yeah so the fiber you know typically can last at least 25 years if not longer um, and so they're typically, you know, they're protected. They have this uh, exterior coating on the outside to protect it from the physical elements. And the glass itself, uh, theoretically, can run can run much longer than that 25-year period. And the great thing um, with fiber is, is um, we get to choose the photonic technology that runs on the fiber. So typically, our system in New York City, the way it works is we allocate a unique wavelength to each subscriber. And this ensures um, that they have a dedicated optical channel between their office to our data center and they can run at any speed. So today it might be one gig or 10 gig. And tomorrow, if they need hypothetically, let's say 25 gig or a hundred gigabit or 400 gigabit, all we have to do is change out the laser transceivers on both ends and match it to that frequency that's been allocated to them and voila, they're running at that new data rate. So this is, you know, some pretty cool things, um, using a fiber deployment like this
1: yeah so um one thing that we talk about with satellites is uh, portions of the spectrum dedicated to radio transceivers mm-hmm. and stuff and it can be pretty competitive um, for the frequencies that satellites use so to swap out wavelengths or or allocate different wavelengths to different subscribers mm-hmm. are there uh, regulatory or, or policy things that you have to worry about or is it kind of like you have The fiber line and you can do whatever you wish with the light that goes over it
0: right the latter yeah so since uh the wavelengths are are restricted just within that piece of glass if you will there's no regulatory approvals that you need so yeah typically we operate in the infrared band you know we operate from 1200 nanometers to 1700 nanometers of light and uh, you know, and, and the channel spacing is you know very small. You know, it's, t- it's typically 25 gig- gigahertz of uh, spacing to 50 gigahertz. So we can definitely cram in you know quite a bit of channels from 100 to 200 channels easily. You know, uh, bi-directional communications. Uh,
1: that makes a lot of sense, and it sounds like fiber is is really robust in a lot of ways. How would um, a system like Starlink satellite high-speed internet compare to the fiber optic infrastructure?
0: Sure. So um, I mentioned to you about the challenges of getting fiber out. You know, so in New York City, because of the density, you know, it's very easy for us to, uh, relatively more easier for us to make that decision to make an investment to build out that system. But as you get outside New York City, and let's say you will go into these rural locations, you may have to build miles on end of uh, fiber um, in order to reach one home or two homes, and so that might technically impractical. And that's why you see kind of like rural America, have they have very limited options. They're probably stuck with a DSL or a K-modem. And so now when we have a system like Starlink, it gets really exciting because Starlink provides fiber-like internet service. And we've heard that. And what does that actually mean? And it means two things. One because they operate in this low um, orbit, you know, the, um, uh, compared to the geo satellites, um, their latency round trip delay, you know, could be somewhere between 20 and 50 milliseconds. You know, obviously it's fluctuating because their system is not fully built out, but theoretically 20 milliseconds is pretty close, you know, to fiber related speeds. Um, and second, uh, the data rate transfers, you know, uh, in is much higher in terms of, uh, compared to cable and DSL, Pi 50 to 100 megs is what they're projecting. And they could probably achieve much more. Again, it comes down to the amount of spectral um, RF uh, frequencies they have available. And it also depends on the technology in terms of how they're modulating that data rate.
1: How do satellite services yeah. compare in mm-hmm. urban areas?
0: Yeah. So with uh, Starlink, once they get their system operational, um, in essence, um, they can provide service to a massive geographical area. So even with their 700 satellites right now, they can cover a majority of the United States. As an example, the problem that they have right now is uh, just the link availability is reduced. You know, maybe users might have somewhere between 40 and 80 percent availability throughout a given day. But as they build out the orbital planes and systems, um, up in space, um, they can increase the availability to close to hundred percent. Um, and so once they have that, uh, that system fully built out, um, it means anywhere, anyone around the U S could easily tap into Starlink and get immediate internet access. And this is crucial, especially in rural areas because it's going to take five or 10 years theoretically to get 5g wireless service out there, or even fiber optic. And, um, and actually, to get 5G service out in rural and in, in rural America, it still requires fiber optics to to backhaul that wireless connectivity. So when we have a system like Starlink, um, once you plop out that you know thousands of signs up in space, you know you can service a massive region. You know on down on ground, you don't necessarily have to you know install a new satellite to service this section of the United States.
1: So in considering the rural areas, do you think it's a more um, appropriate comparison to? Um between Starlink and 5G as opposed to Starlink and uh, a fiber uh, service that you might get in a city?
0: Uh, yes, exactly. So um, probably, you know, over the last couple of years, as 5G is being rolled out, there's been a huge emphasis on 5G is suitable for rural areas. But again, in order to make, to make 5G available in rural areas, it still requires that massive fiber infrastructure to be built out, and it's not a small task. It's huge. It takes a lot of work, energy, capital, and more importantly, time. There's only you know uh, so much you can do um, to get that fiber rolled out. So Starlink has a huge uh, window of opportunity right now to be able to address that market. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, customers, refugees, if you will, that want to get off DSL and and um, you know and sub par internet providers out there. Um, and I'm sure Fibre will eventually get, get out there, uh, but Starlink has a, has a great opportunity right now to adjust that demand.
1: Yeah, and Starlink isn't alone when it comes to these promises of high-speed internet from space. Um, uh, we've known about OneWeb for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon has also announced Project Kuiper, which is a similar uh, low-Earth orbit constellation to provide satellite internet. So why do you think that these companies are investing so heavily in Leo constellations rather than uh, better terrestrial networks? Um,
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, for, again, Internet companies, uh, it's crucial to get as many subscribers connected onto the Internet. So, um, um, again, for companies like Google, for example, and Facebook, they rely on more subscribers to get onto the platform. And so whether it's rural America or on the other side of the world, um, uh, these systems will allow us to get the unconnected better connected to the internet. And so um, there's huge you know, revenue potentials in a system like this.
2: So let's talk economics for a moment. Uh, if I'm a consumer in a market for high-speed internet in 2025 or 2030, how will things have changed for me? What kind of options and decisions would I go to when choosing a ISP?
0: So you know today, um, you know whether you're in rural rural America or you're in another country, a lot of a lot. If you're in a rural area, in essence, um, you're depending on this copper-based technology, and so people are suffering with you know single-digit you know megabits download speed, maybe one or two megs going up, and so hopefully by 2025 or even 2030, um, we'll have a choice of Leo constellations, you know, Leo satellite providers to choose from to be able to get our internet connectivity. I would assume by 2030, the fiber would have been built out to more rural areas uh, throughout the world. And so the users would not only have a choice to Leo, but potentially to 5G. And perhaps, if they're lucky, maybe even access to fiber optic service. Um, but nevertheless, the overall marketplace to get for connectivity services should be increasing. And consumers will have a better choice in terms of provider selection, A greater amount of capacity and hopefully a more competitive offering, you know, as this marketplace that better develops.
1: So like right now, it might be really expensive to get um, to get fiber. Like it's a privilege basically to be on the Starlink network. But you you really think those can be competitive and like um, the cost will come down to win over those potential new customers?
0: Definitely, yeah, if you're the only game in town, you know, Starlink has the ability to price out um, the service as they wish. Um, They just have to be more competitive and let's say one of the geo satellite providers as an example, and so you can still get customers. But once uh, OneWeb and um, Amazon's projects uh, come online, that'll definitely drive up the competition and it'll force them to be more innovative and also more competitive. And so that's great for consumers. So one of the things that we need to do here in the US is to foster uh, a good marketplace um, to enable more competitors to come in. And so it's exciting to see the FCC, allowing these uh, Leo constellations to go up. But what we also need to do on the fiber side is kind of what I mentioned to you in New York City, we're able to run up and down streets and avenues very easily in Manhattan. But in Brooklyn, a system like that doesn't exist. You have to trench. But in order to really create a better marketplace in the U.S., we need to install these um, neutral condo systems and and utility poles, so it allows providers of all sizes, small, medium, and large, to easily run fiber optic cables, you know, between cities, towns, across state lines, um, because fundamentally we need to better connect, you know, our citizens to the internet to really enable the next generation workforce.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, like, by twenty thirty, you said fiber would already have been laid and things like that. Do you uh, foresee different changes to fiber technologies or, um, changes to the infrastructure Uh to, you know, as we progress.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of changes in fiber. Um, so right now, um, you know, a lot of the providers are using GPON based uh, technology, you know, which is uh, a way of connecting subscribers to the fiber. You know, in terms of sharing one fiber with multiple amount of subscribers. Um, and so, for example, GPON I believe is right now two and a half gig down, one one gig up. Like Verizon FiOS in New York City uses this technology. They can. Generally, cram in 120 subscribers per strand. Um, the system we use, as an example, we allocate unique wavelengths. That's a little bit more expensive. But going into the future, um, the technology that we're using and the technology GPON, they're merging together to create something called WDM PON. In essence, the, you, you should be able to run hundreds of optical channels on one fiber, but only take up one port versus multiple ports in our design. And so um, that would basically increase um, capacity. And and reduce the amount of uh, equipment, real estate needed at the provider site. And so it, it means um, people should be able to start, be able to uh, obtain uh, industrial strength interconnectivity, so to speak, at the residential level, which is going to be pretty awesome as technology progresses further. So that's one. And then, you know, and then also fundamentally, fiber technology itself is changing. So there's a lot of uh, talk on top of hollow fiber. And multi-core fiber, and so um, multi-core fiber. So right now, uh, one fiber optic strand, you can only transmit, you know, in that one core. But multi-core, what they are going to do is they're going to have multiple cores in one fiber. So you can have seven cores, eight cores, twelve cores. They're talking about. So it's actually faster. So you can exponentially increase the capacity. And then another technology is called HoloCore, which is basically just entirely hollow in the in the middle. And the idea with that is it's supposed to have lower attenuation and uh, lower latency, you know, as you don't have to bounce in the glass up and down. So so those are two other things to look out for.
2: Very exciting. Um, with regards to getting these higher speeds, right, as we're getting people from DSL to high speed cable to higher speed fiber, you know, there's not that many applications from a consumer standpoint that can hand, that can saturate one gigabit, right? You know, streaming mm-hmm. video, maximum like 50 megabits or so. Um, are there new applications that could be rolled out from a business perspective when you know you have consumers that have a gigabit plus bandwidth
0: pipe? Uh, Yeah, this is a a great question. Uh, I think this is what we're all trying to figure out is like, what's the next killer application? Uh, There's a huge population out there right now that don't have access uh, to fiber or gigabit like services. And so, again, there's a a big piece of the United States that would be dying to stream Netflix, (laughs) which is still crazy. But um, but yeah, in the future, I would assume you know, just in terms of resolution, is probably going to be the next thing. And instead of 4K, you might have 8K. Uh, it might be more virtual reality type applications. I'm sure um, um, there's still a major transformation within businesses to be more modernized, and I'm sure that's going to drive up the capacity requirements. Right now, we're still at its infancy, so it's difficult to tell exactly what's going to use up this capacity. Um, but I do know um, that. As as more capacity is provided to businesses and consumers, they find a way to utilize that and consume it.
1: I, I'd want to poke at something that I, really surprised me about this conversation, and that you haven't been super critical about Starlink. Um, when we first talked, uh, I expected Starlink to be, you know, presenting itself as a more of a competitor, uh, but it seems like your your areas of focus are different. Your segments of the market seem to be different is that true or is starlink and kuiper like are these serious competitors to a fiber isp
0: sure yeah i'll answer that in two parts so yeah so we're hyper focused in the new york city market and so uh probably fiber is going to be a lot more cost effective and better suited and the reason why is um the, the limitation with uh, Starlink is, um, again, they only have so many satellites up in space. And even if they deploy 12,000 satellites, they could definitely service the entire United States from a physical geographical perspective. But the issue is they only have so much capacity in terms of RF uh, capacity to go up and down in the airwaves. And so when you focus that, let's say, in the New York City market and you want to service a million subscribers, it's just, uh, f- you know, f- technically just impossible to service you know that volume of users. So since the system itself inherently has a limited subscriber capacity, again, just like fiber optics, as mentioned to you, like GPON, for example, you can only put 120, maybe 256 subscribers on one single fiber before you have signal-to-noise and uh, and other um, issues. And so the same concepts apply um, to SpaceX. There's only so many subscribers they're able to put on a particular orbital plane um, communicating. And even with the beam steering uh, technologies and... um, Uh, And other techniques, Um, again, they can only cram in so many subscribers before the performance starts to fall off. And they're going to have to play this by ear. And uh, everyone's still trying to figure that. There's been reports out there that uh, they can only handle half a million subscribers. And if that's the case, um, SpaceX will have to evaluate, um, is that enough Mm -hmm. revenue on an annual basis in order to support a system that can do it? theoretically only stay in space for five or seven years before it has to be replenished, you know, those systems. And so, you know, that's part of their capital uh, equation. Uh, in telecommunications, as I mentioned to you, our fiber lifespans have, uh, can last for 25 years. Um, and so again, with SpaceX, they have uh, that five or seven year window. So again, larger companies like Verizon or an AT&T who service, um, this market that, um, doesn't have access to fiber, they um, are definitely concerned, but they also know long-term, you know, they may not understand, you know, whether it's a real viable threat or not. But nevertheless, um, these large entities will have to um, address that threat because otherwise, you know, uh, SpaceX can easily eat their lunch, you know, in these markets that are underserved.
1: Legacy services are still a major component in the infrastructure. But how does SpaceX affect copper-based technology?
0: Oh, yeah. So what I was mentioning is like uh, old technologies, you know, when they first came out, they're great in terms of... this thing about the dial-up error. You know, we started with dial-up modems connected to the internet. When k finally came out and we all got it, it's like, oh my God, we've been saved from dial-up internet access. And then I would say as people start loading up the cable systems is getting slower and slower. Uh, we may have not noticed it, but once fiber got rolled out, oh my God, it was a day and night difference, you know, and who would go from fiber back to cable modem? And so, uh, so, so with Starlink and, you know, space-based services, they're rescuing the people still stuck on really old DSL and cable modem service. And they're getting the, their fiber-based version, which is space-based internet. But um, eventually um you know, space-based internet and even uh, fiber-based, you know, GPON services, they, st- they still suffer the same fate because as the demand continues to grow in terms of traffic utilization, inherently that encoding, decoding, modulation scheme, encoding uh, schemes will definitely hit that saturation limit and they'll need to in- innovate. And so with GPON, as I mentioned to you earlier, currently this is the technology that major companies like Verizon, Uverse, I mean Verizon, uh, Fios and AT&T U-verse is using. They're cramming in 128 to 250 subscribers on a fiber. Eventually, um, that's going to slow down, and there'll be something else to replace GPON entirely. And people say, oh my god, we were running on GPON all this time. And look at this new blah, blah, blah technology. And so what's important for uh, SpaceX and fiber providers is that um, today, it may be state of the art. But just remember, tomorrow, it could be obsolete, And you have to continue innovating. Can't really rest uh, on your heels.
1: Yeah, so you said fiber basically saved all the people that were running on copper. Like, oh my God, can't believe we could live with internet Mm -hmm. speeds so slow and can't believe I tolerated in my youth uh, waiting 30 seconds for images to load on a website with dial-up. Do you think that... I don't use dial-up ever. I will never use dial-up ever again. When I go back to my parents' house, they're still on DSL and it's it's a struggle. So do you think that copper-based technologies will last after if spacex launches their constellation proves it out even if fiber isn't available in all locations do you think copper-based technology even stands a chance
0: no i think it's dead in the water i think the only thing that's worth it is to recycle it for its copper <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's more valuable as <laughs> copper yeah what what would happen with all the copper-based lines that would they just stay there
0: uh, my guess is um, based on whatever local regulatory and state regulatory, because again, if they're the uh, last mile uh, provider, meaning the default provider, if you will, they probably will need to leave it there for regulatory obligations unless they get a, a consent you know, from the authorities that they can remove that copper. And I believe that's even happened in New York, um, where they can remove the copper as long as it was a substitute that uh, people had access to. So, But that's the key. Um, these companies that are operating legacy copper services may not be able to remove it because they haven't deployed fiber or replacement-based technology. Um, so then, that begs the question: Will cities and states change their policy that hey, uh, if a new default provider like Starlink um, is available, um, will that re- give uh, will that relieve the obligations of the incumbent providers to remove their copper?
1: That's cr- that's crazy. Copper is dead, right?
0: <laughs> it's dead. Yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So earlier on, you mentioned that you know five G versus Starlink might be a better competition analysis, um, but with five G, you still have to have fiber backhaul, right, mm-hmm. to the towers. Uh, is there potential for five G and Starlink to to team up with a five G tower with a Starlink receiver, uh, being able to go to multiple uh, end users? Obviously, not everyone's going to get the full speed of a dedicated Starlink terminal. But do you see that combination being able to kind of accelerate the 5G rollout or even 4G rollout?
0: Yes, I think there's a a huge market segment for uh, Starlink. Um, So they could wholesale their capacity um, to the 5G operators down on the ground and even to other telecom providers for point-to-point connectivity, uh, as I mentioned to you, like kind of connecting to other terrestrial fiber optic networks. So yes, um, I could definitely see like Verizon AT&T potentially using Starlink's uh, system to backhaul that capacity from a localized area down on the ground in a remote area Bring it up into space and back down to another data center somewhere else, and Starlink could provide, in essence, point-to-point space backhaul um, service, and that would be great, you know. So that's one application, and again, um, for hospitals and um, other organizations that need high-capacity um, point-to-point spatial communications, you know, is definitely um, going to be a game changer. Now, um, s- you know, Starlink's system right now, um, their system is basically. Um, Backhauling a lot of this traffic, you know, from space back down to ground immediately. They don't have their uh, inter-satellite laser connectivity up and running yet. But if that comes online and it works successfully, you're going to see a huge amount of other applications because, as I mentioned to low latency um, is a huge um, opportunity, you know, in terms of additional revenue sources. So, uh, so let me explain for a bit. So New York to um los angeles for example the latency is about 60 milliseconds on a fiber optic based network but if starlink is able to route laser you know by laser in space you know from let's say new york up into space and then from space to another overall plane to hit los angeles um they can get that latency down to there technically 30 40 milliseconds and so that can also open up a huge amount of other backhaul um opportunities you know for the company that's crazy (laughs) i'm just
1: thinking about (laughs) it um uh uh, that brings to mind like a couple of these things is like Starlink requires user terminals and like actual line of sight to mm-hmm. the satellites in order to communicate. Um, that said, like are, is there potential to make hybrid networks um, like fiber, you connect, you like internally handle the data, mm-hmm. go to a data center and then, Oh, I need to send this to China or I need to send this to India. You transfer it to the other backhaul.
0: Um, I imagine them in, doing this in space now
1: yeah exactly space space. and then so you have fiber on both ends and then space in between Mm -hmm. like
0: um huge opportunity
1: so that said starlink before i was thinking about it as uh starlink being a competitor in in the space but in in some ways it's just making the whole internet industry faster is that reasonable to say
0: yeah, it potentially has that capability. Again, if, it, if they could prove that it's functional and reliable and they can actually extract that huge amount of uh, capacity on the lasers, um, anything is possible. Again, once they get that laser connectivity, that's fiber-like in essence in terms of speed and latency. And um, reliability, I can't speak to. you know uh, Totally different uh, technology up in space in terms of how they can do that phase lock um, up there. Um, but again, once they get enough uh, satellites up in space, um, they can kind of experiment and get that experience under the belt and they can take that same interspatial uh, laser connectivity um, and they could potentially also do it from Sally down to the user terminal and they could potentially transition from RF now to laser so and if they do that it'll be just mind-blowing because that will be you know fiber-optic laser connectivity you know but except it's going through air we call that free space optics by the way you know and typically free space optics um, is you know a, a laser pointing to each other in air and that exists today you know and we've been doing that for decades um, and there's been a certain there's been a few entities I've been playing with it from from uh, from land to space but again the mechanics are very complicated because it requires an optical phased array to be built and tracking the satellites and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Plus the atmosphere doesn't, you know, it's a big fluid and it it makes everything all wobbly. When you take a laser beam, it turns into mush. Plus water is like water absorbs infrared. So I I wanted to ask about one thing you mentioned Um, uh, to preface that Starlink's cross links between satellites would be using lasers and in essence, um, a fiber link is a laser being guided through glass Mm -hmm. instead of free space space for that transmission. You mentioned phase lock. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you explain what what that is and how it impacts things?
0: Yeah, so what I meant by that is... um uh, so currently in uh, RF technology, what they're using is uh, they have this uh, antenna. And the antenna is able to beam steer the radio signal uh, to basically precisely target the user terminal and receive traffic. And that's, in essence, Wi-Fi G and Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E are all using this uh, technology. So when it comes to um, optical communications, you know, free space uh, optics, um, you can take that same concept... And we can have an optical laser uh, set up as an array, all transmitting in parallel to the destination. and you can get feedback from the receiver to figure out which um, point on the receiving side was able to receive that optics more clearly and then focus all that energy more precisely to that area. And so you have this, um, you know, uh, optical phased array. I'm not sure if that's the correct term, um, but this is kind of some of the experiments that we're doing here based on land. And so it's kind of exciting. But again, uh, similar to what's being done in RF could be applied to optical. And I'm sure this is where they'll probably take this ultimately at the next level.
1: Yeah. Um, so a phased array, you mentioned that they steer the beam. It's it's really cool to me just to, to think about mm-hmm. it, how they're using, uh, constructive and destructive interference. And depending on the timing mm-hmm. of all these transmissions, the waves, um, make each other stronger and, and or not. Mm-hmm. And effectively it's just, uh, a portion of the, the whole field of view just gets, um, really strong signal compared to somewhere else and they can steer it that way just all digitally without moving parts um, in terms of that phased array. Are there ways that uh, technology that you're experimenting with at Stealth Communications could uh, benefit from or help to improve radio communications to spacecraft?
0: Oh yeah so um so again we focus a lot on uh, wave division multiplexing you know that's a, a key part of our uh, system today and so the key for us is how do we continue expanding um the number of channels and increasing density of channels and so what I think is uh, this technology could easily be deployed you know, up in space because just imagine, right now we're talking about just single inner satellite connections, let's say 10 gig, maybe 40 or 100 gig. You know, 100 gig is probably a little bit harder right now in space, but 10 gig is definitely easily achievable. Um, and so, But again, if you're able to overlay uh, multiple... 10 gig circuits, you know, at different frequencies up in space. In essence, you're replicating what we're doing down in terrestrial up in space. And so now they can increase that capacity dramatically and it's huge. So, but I think, you know, for SpaceX, they'll have to do one step at a time, (laughs) making sure that they can get the space uh, system operational, prove to the investors that it's it's a viable mechanism of delivering interconnectivity. Uh, Another big bet for SpaceX is they're hoping they can win a part of the FCC um, auction, you know, down here. And uh, if they can make that convincing, you know, they have another big investor, which is, in essence, the U.S. government, um, that would potentially fund them for the next 10 years, or at least partially anyway.
1: I was about to ask, um, I I think we're on the same brain wavelength right now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was about to ask um, about your insight into these contracts and, you know, big economic opportunities for, for Starlink. What are they competing for and how... Good are their chances from from what you know so
0: far? Sure, yeah, I believe uh, there's about sixteen billion um, that's available right now. You know, for the, over the ten years um, to get funded, it's a reverse auction. So, um, in essence, uh, the has determined eligible census blocks um, that tells how many uh, homes are um, are need to be serviced in a particular area. And the way it works is um, the providers put in a bid. And uh, the FCC will basically elect the low bidders. But in order to be considered part of the auction, they have to be able to meet these different uh, criteria or tiers. One of them is uh, you have to have low latency. And um, and the question is, are you going to be able to provide 100 by 100, gigabyte gigabit, or is it below 100 megabits? And so... Uh, the FCC had very little information, and so they had—they've been having this negative tone, if you will, um, towards um, you know Leo constellations because it's still unproven. So um, SpaceX had till September 23rd. I haven't actually followed it to see if if they've submitted it, but they had till September 23rd to file some documents um, with the test results. And and you've seen online there's been leaks of speed reports, um, and uh, so there's definitely information out there that they can definitely hit these low latency and they could definitely hit the hundred by the hundred megabit speed limit. So I have a feeling they could definitely, they definitely have a major chance at winning some of that money. I don't think they can win a significant amount because they're still competing with a lot of the fiber providers, but, um, But ultimately, they have a chance of winning a good chunk, I think, uh, in the locations where fiber has a difficult uh, chance of reaching or where the fiber providers just don't have an interest because there's only 10 homes in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the middle of a uh, farm area. So, But we'll see in the coming weeks.
1: It's kind of a catch-22 then, isn't it? Because it's unproven technology, but in order to prove it out, it would be good for them to win a contract and actually build it. So at what point uh, do you think satellite constellations would earn the FCC's trust and FCC's been working with copper lines for you know decades upon decades so is there yeah, they have a.
0: I know from their perspective, they're very keen on fiber-based investments. They like they know that it lasts for twenty, thirty years, and um, it's going to be there in the ground. And on the other hand, Leo constellations have a lifespan of seven years. Um, yeah, five to seven year theoretical, and so that means in order to get the ten year, uh, ten or twenty year, that it would would have to depend on the private entity in order to keep uh, replacing that system. Um,
1: what will it take for? Starlink to build that trust in the FCC?
0: Uh, So Starlink has about 700 satellites. And so right now, based on the positioning of their system, you know, they can reliably provide service in the northern part of the United States. My guess is they may need to deploy another few thousand satellites to be able to cover a majority of the U.S. uh, and provide a reliable service, meaning... um, uh, avail- we call it uh, availability throughout the day, you know. So because if you only had 50% availability at your home connection at home, you would find it's down half the time. So that's the case with Starlink at the moment because of their limited satellite systems up in space. So hypothetically, if there are 700, maybe if they got to 3,000 or 6,000 satellites, hopefully they could provide a 95% reliability to users here within the United States. And so maybe it may take that um, to really make the FCC consider it viable. But the FCC could consider giving them the contract where they have a 90 or 95% availability in the northern part of the US because you know Starlink could easily prove to them that they can deploy that many satellites within the next two or three years.
1: Uh, SpaceX in the past has done a lot of work on the regulatory side. Um, earlier on, a couple of years ago, with respect to launching military satellites, for example, where it was very closed off and who the government permitted to launch those payloads and SpaceX fought and won some cases to allow not just them, but also other launch companies to launch and compete for these auctions and stuff. So it's not unexpected for SpaceX to push for policy changes for, in this case, at the FCC mm-hmm. to enable their business. Um, so, so far, it sounds like they're just competing in bids. Have you noticed or, or do you expect Starlink and, and SpaceX to push for policy changes in terms of um, you know the rules at play instead of just these bids it, for contracts.
0: Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, for, you know, if they've done this in the past, um, especially with this coming auction, you know, it's a, it's, it's a huge it's a huge amount of capital. You know, um, that potentially could help SpaceX um, reach you know um, profitability or meet their uh, business plan. So yes, what I wanted to mention about this in particular is so if you look at the uh, sixteen billion dollar auction right now that's uh, present, um, it's supposed to be technology agnostic. So SpaceX does have a serious uh, chance, and they should uh, to be able to win that bid. And if they don't, or if they're excluded, it wouldn't surprise me um, them taking lobbying or legal actions in order to make a, to persuade the FCC to reconsider that position.
1: This is super weird that it's like such a confluence of of so many different industries, right? So you've got um, launch because they're launching their own satellites. You've got mm-hmm. spacecraft operations because it w- it was it's just mind blowing to think of how many satellites they've already requested to launch, and then the technologies at play are in order to compete in a completely different industry um, to what they've done before. <laughs> it's just crazy. So like, how, has your opinion of Starlink changed over time since? since you first learned of them until now, here we are, you know, with a couple hundred Starlink satellites in space and leaks from Reddit saying how fast it is and actually like smashing expectations or or
0: not. Yeah. I mean, when I first heard about this, I, I thought this was crazy and, uh, but you know, even them launching rockets and coming back down, that was an impressive feat of uh, technology. And so, um, but obviously, you can see they're definitely out there to break uh, records or defy gravity, so to speak. And so I think it's exciting. But, you know, one of the main concerns I have also um, uh, that I haven't really talked about is, you know, if they get a constellation of 12,000 satellites or even 30,000 satellites, which is what they're talking about in the high end, um, what does that mean in terms of impairment of our night sky? Because we're no, no longer going to be able to visually see that the way we have, you know, over the last, uh, you know since existence, if you will. And also the astronomy, um, uh, folks down here, you know, they've made significant investments in ground-based systems. And so they're going to have some major impairments again, you know, observing the night sky naturally. So they talk about, you know, um, absorbing the light and so forth, but whether you absorb it or reflect it, you're still going to miss data, you know, on, from ground-based instruments. And so that's a serious issue. And so, are there
1: external factors that play a role in, in terrestrial ground stations? Kind of Like SpaceX has to worry about all this extra stuff. They have to worry about space debris. They have to worry about, uh, you know, affecting astro- astronomical observations mm-hmm. on the ground. Does 5G or fiber have to worry about other factors like uh, that might come into play?
0: Um. So, you know, uh, s- s- SpaceX is operating in the V-band and also the KU and KA band. So, you know, generally they're separate frequencies compared to what 5G is using. But, you know, these are all millimeter waves. And so I think the impact would be pretty minimal. Uh, maybe SpaceX might interfere with... Um, other frequencies of, that might be DoD related, perhaps, or uh, perhaps with navigation. So there's been so many policy changes at the FCC in terms of freeing up and relocating bands. You know, I haven't quite followed that particularly, um, but I know there's been cur- concerns in the past about in, uh, certain uh, rearrangements of the frequencies could it impair GPS, as an example. You know, and and weather radar. So, but these are always issues whenever you uh, change the wavelength allocations around. And open them up. So even uh, TV spaces are being opened up and repurposed, you know, for 5G. You know, and uh, it's interesting to see. I mean, all in all, I, I think this is exciting. Um, no negative view on our part. They're filling a huge void, you know, um, in the marketplace right now. Because uh, again, you know, a lot of the incoming carriers to content and satisfied. if they can continue um, raking in the revenues on the old asset might as well, you know, because to lay fiber is massive and the return investment could be 20, 50 years even, who knows? So, um, you know, another theory, it's not really a theory. uh, Some of the things that we're trying to push out there in the public is to really remedy this problem that we have with broadband on the ground. I mean, space is definitely one way of resolving it, but what I really hope the FCC does is repurpose this auction money Instead of giving out billions of dollars to providers to run fiber or whatever, you know, to provide internet connectivity in rural in these remote areas around the U.S., what if we use that money to build out this neutral condo, uh, underground conduits, and, and neutral utility poles, because. That's extremely vital in our industry in order to string our fiber across or run our conduits through. And if we had access to that, I could easily have our employees start stringing cable across the U.S. I mean, obviously, we would have to make the investment again in buying the cable, but that's cheaper than me trenching the roadways. And so $16 million is quite a bit of money, you know, to lay You know, utility poles and conduits, and making it extremely easy for ISPs of all sizes, you know, um, to attach the poles or lay the cables through. And when you do that, it will create a better marketplace. Just imagine you can have choices of hundreds of ISPs rather than just a handful of providers. I remember when we started back in 1995, there were thousands of ISPs, probably five to 10,000 ISPs in the United States. And today, that number is down to like a thousand maybe a couple hundred even you know and it's shrinking day by day
1: yeah so like i mean you go down the street and you see all these telephone poles <laughs> and and that copper infrastructure seems to be there like like you said so you're saying like yes this is a paradigm shift moving away from copper toward fiber toward uh these new systems and it'll take mm-hmm. building the the highway Right. The highway isn't something that you paid a private company to build on their own. You you kind of build a highway and it enables all this transcontinental business and commerce.
0: What we need to do as a country, we need to build a a new interstate highway system to be able to allow providers to run their fiber optic cables through. It can't be owned by a private entity. And that's what we have here today. Today, we have utility poles and we have conduits underground, but they're owned by private incumbent carriers. And if I want to get access to those poles or conduits, you have to pay huge amounts of money to get access to it. And that's one issue. And the second issue is they make it an extremely lengthy procedural process to even get into their system. And that could take 12 to 18 months. And it's just insane. Imagine, and this is actually a true story. We have customers, let's say throughout New York City, like in Brooklyn, New York. It, Brooklyn doesn't have a neutral underground conduit system compared to Manhattan, New York City. And so if a bro- customer in Brooklyn wants our service, um, and if I were to go through Verizon, which is then coming care to use their conduit system, I would have to wait 12 months at least to be able to lay our fiber cables through. And that's after paying them Twenty to thirty dollars per foot make-ready fee, which is does them saying, "Oh yeah, we ran a piece of uh, rope through the conduit. Now you can go ahead and have your employees pull your cable through." Again, that's after twelve months and after paying them their thirty dollars per foot make-ready fee. These make-ready fees is is not only in New York City, but it's all around the United States, and it's extremely expensive for small ISPs like us to get the job done in terms of laying the fiber. Um, you know, in different areas around. Uh, in the city or around the U.S. And this is the reason why we don't have broadband providers. It's really the incoming carriers are making it extremely difficult to get access uh, to this right of cost-effectively. And um, quickly in Manhattan, I'll just to give you an example, if a customer um, somewhere in the city, it could be one mile away or around the block. If they wanted our fiber service, we could easily send our crew out one night, rod rope, and we could lay the cable down in a matter of days and get them connected because that neutral conduit system exists. And, um, and it's, and that's how, that's how, that's, that's, I mean, that's the importance of having a system like this. So just imagine if we built this around the United States, oh my God, we could definitely solve this problem problem within the decade.
1: And then you don't need a whole satellite mega constellation of 30,000 satellites to bypass Verizon or AT&T's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, AT&T. you know what's
0: hilarious is uh, because of Verizon, AT&T, they just gave you know SpaceX an opportunity. I think, you know, it's actually funny, you know, to be honest with you, if ATT and Verizon got the act together and they laid the fiber everywhere and they were able to provide a reliable cost-effective service, there wouldn't be a need of competitors in the marketplace because they would have already solved the problem. But because of their inefficiencies, it creates an opportunity for all of us. But um, but right now, uh, I see a lot of taxpayer dollars are spent um, providing you know, building broadband out in these remote areas. And I'd like to see those funds repurposed and better used in terms of building this more neutral infrastructure so we can build a better marketplace. Uh, because we're seeing, you know, I would say cities are growing, but so are rural areas, you know, throughout America. And so there will be bigger cities also, you know, who knows? There'll be another, a new New York City somewhere else. And so are we going to pay one provider, you know, billions of dollars to lay fiber out there? Or should we, again, build a neutral system, you know, build an interstate system, for fiber connectivity out there, so we can have a dozen or two dozen providers flourishing out there.
1: Uh, so we're coming up on our allotted time. What would you like to leave our listeners with uh, when they listen to this podcast and they they go forward thinking about Starlink? What would you say their main takeaway should be?
0: Oh well, I think it's exciting. Uh, I'm hoping you know as they're. They get their system up and running and fully built out, it'll really give a chance uh, for folks in remote areas to finally get access to fast, reliable, low latency broadband that they've been waiting for a decade or two, if you will. And so we'll get them more caught up and better connected, just like how folks are in city environments. And So I think uh, it's realistic and it's right around the corner. We're getting close. All right,
1: thanks, Rihari, for speaking with us today. And um, where can people find you after listening uh, to the show?
0: Oh, yeah, you could find me online. I'm on uh, Facebook and also Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash pandit, And uh, you can also visit our website at stealth.net to learn more about the company.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to get future episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can check out our huge Subscribe to get future episodes of SpecsCast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including more interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in space on our website, blog.specscast.com. Let us know what you think of the show. Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service or reach out to us directly on Twitter at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can donate to Campaign Zero or Black Girls Code and send us a copy of your receipt and we'll match your donation up to a total of $300 in donations to those charities because Black Lives Matter. If you listened to our episode with Will Pomerantz, uh, we spoke about the Brooke Owens Fellowship. Just recently, Will Pomerantz announced the Patty Grace Smith Fellowship, which aims to do for racial equality what the Brooke Owens Fellowship has done for gender equality in the space industry. You can donate to the Patty Grace Smith Fellowship at pgsfellowship.org, and you can also donate to the Brooke Owens Fellowship at brookowensfellowship.org. Our music is by Nelson Scott.